0: This is Joshua Bell with the Kilt and the Cloth with our Tuesday morning Bible study as we pick up with Matthew chapter 22, uh, verse 23, and uh, this is this is kind of a beautiful section. So one of the coolest parts about the ideology of Jesus coming back is, is that it it, it, it comes in my opinion, comes directly from the Hebrew Bible understanding of the rise and fall of kingdoms. There's this this idea throughout the whole Hebrew Bible that say let's just say the Assyrians come in, the Assyrians come in, they're horrible people, they keep us enslaved uh, but at some point their reign will end. is kind of the, the Hebrew Bible prophet's idea. The Babylonians can come in, and they're horrible, horrible people, and they'll keep us enslaved, but at some point, their reign will end because there's this, I'm going to use a fancy word, there's this meta-narrative throughout the whole Hebrew Bible that even though humans will do all of these horrible things, God transcends tongue. And if God has chosen us as God's people, then we will always be okay. Even if we're struggling right now. So in Matthew, you've got this Hebrew Bible meta narrative all the way through it, which leads us right to where we're at about the question about the resurrection, because the idea is, is that the kingdoms would fall and that God would take over. Right. God would rise. So now Jesus has said to them, "No, no, yes, that's right. But I'm, I'm, and I don't want to use this language flippantly, but for lack of a better phrase, Jesus is claiming to be and will be the new emperor on, the, on God's behalf on earth, which starts to change the narrative and theological ideas, right? Because now we're splitting God. If God is completely in charge of all these things, and then Jesus is the emperor on behalf of God, it, it's going to be confusing, just as it is for us. So that's where we start here today. So here we go. The same day, some Sadducees came to him saying, There is no resurrection. Uh, well, it's, and some say it's who say that there is no resurrection. Uh, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies childless, his brother shall marry the widow and raise up children for his, for, for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, died childless, leaving the widow to his brother. The second did the same. So also the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection then, whose wife of the seven will she be? For all of them had married her." So just to just pause right there. So this is, this is called Leveret marriage. Which she's with what the Sadducees are asking. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-five. I don't remember the verses, I just remember that it was in that passage. Deuteronomy chapter twenty-five. Five and six. Five, five and six. Okay. Um this this is remember the goal here is is a, a covenantal relationship with humans and God, as long as you continue to produce offspring. In the name of God, you're providing your end of the covenant with Abraham. Remember how this works? Uh, Your your ancestors will outnumber the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. So, this leverage marriage is a big deal for them. And so, the Sadducees are asking this really deep question. Um, But Jesus answers them You were wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Or in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are life. Uh, I want to make sure that we got this right in right. Greek. Uh, mine I says angel. That. says uh, uh, angels. Does yours say angels? Angelo. Oh, um, Angelo. Um, okay, so angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is God not of the dead but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astounded at this teaching. I mean, of course they would. This this is he he is changing he's changing Torah. Right? But he's not. Well it doesn't say in Torah what happens after you die. Correct. Because so, because they don't have they don't have it afterlife. afterlife. So, there's... why they were concerned about re- resurrection, I don't know. That's the problem. <laughs> and so, why is it, why it a... the Sadducees doing that? I don't know. Well, and, and some scholars would say that the Sadducees are doing this because he's, he's challenging what they've always believed. I know, but where did they get the idea of resurrection anyway? Oh, because they heard him talk about it oh, okay. f- prior to this. They've been listening. Okay. They've been listening. So, is so that testing, or is it more like? We hear this. Maybe believe it, but we're not so sure. Doctor Carter says that he, he they're doing it to challenge. He he battles he battles words with words against them. So he's like, you don't know the scripture. You don't understand how this is supposed to work because you haven't been living it in the first place. So where they have heard it before, uh, they're they're not paying attention to it now. So it's it's a challenge. However, I, I like to think that this is a good question for us as well. The resurrection is is a problem, um, and I don't mean problem as in bad thing. It's it's just it's it's a it's a scenario that we we even struggle with today. How we articulate it, you know, Jesus doth, and then raises from the grave, and that's it. But now with blind faith, we're we're okay with that. Right? But if we're really struggling with this concept, why did he have to why did he have to die? Is the, the greatest question a high school kid will ask you, or even someone new in their faith. Why did he have to die? So this is Matthew's argument about the religious leaders arguing with him. But but why does that matter? resurrection <laughs> which they don't why do you need to resurrect? That doesn't make sense. Because Moses, they said, you know, Moses says, well, if this happens, so why do you have to come back? the that yeah, yeah. Yep, that's it. Your 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 earthly body goes into Sheol because it no longer has the Ruach of God. The Ruach of God, I mean, it's it's a different theology, right, than, than us. So the idea that the Ruach gives us purpose and meaning, gives us a, a life um when it leaves us wherever it goes because they don't i i tend to think of it and it's improper <laughs> but i like it i like the idea of thinking of god breathing right breathe he breathes out life life is created and as he inhales life is returned not taken away but the right um and it's not reincarnation it's just this i like the idea of god breathing i don't know <laughs> um it in The Jews' Jewish faith, when, when that ruach is done, it served its purpose. It might return to God, but uh, that our, our bodies, because we're formed from clay, go back to the earth and they have no purpose anymore, which is why shul is a big thing. Like it's your earthly vessel is in shoal, wandering around endlessly because there's no ruach in it anymore. Since there are I I tend to believe that God doesn't ever break promises. So, so for for them at that time in existence, uh there there was no need of a messiah, right? Like that that wasn't their fun, function or reality. But what do you do with the others? Because if God says all of God's creation are gonna be welcomed, um it leaves all the Gentiles up, all of the children of Cain and all of Ham's children and let's not forget all of the Canaanites and the Samaritans and all of the other people. I think that what happens is, is that Jesus then is the bridge for everyone else. That's how it makes sense to me. I think that does that mean that the Jews have to change in order to be With us again, I don't. I don't think they need. They don't and still don't talk about heaven as a real thing. So for them, when they die, they die. Uh, I don't. I don't think so. I think that's. uh, I think that's uh, a. That's that's implying that they want to go to heaven with us. That's the hardest part for us to. To navigate this, well, we want them all to be with us. Well, yeah, sure, but they—they've already—they've already established in their theology that um, that heaven is not something that they have to have. Their breath guides them on a daily basis to do the r- to do the godly thing. As Christians, we struggle with this because we want everybody to be in a heavenly place. So the Jews are waiting to hear messiah mm-hmm. your, yep. to come. so aimlessly walking around in the so when the messiah comes mm-hmm. <clears> that we take care of those yeah so souls in well so there's no soul that's the difference yeah so jews don't have a soul um without this is another meta-narrative and, and, it, and it's a great question because this is another problem that the Sadducees are dealing with. Jesus is introducing a whole different concept. Now, here we are in 2022; it's still confused about sometimes. He talks about the ruach as a being, like your soul. I go to prepare a place of many rooms. Why, what? What for? Why? What's going there? Something from us has to be going there. So, this concept of soul is introduced again without. Melting your brains. Uh, about 300 years prior to Jesus, philosophers are discussing what is this idea of soul? Is there something of us that happens after we die um, that are not religious? And so in the Greek world, there's this conversation of being and uh, metaphysical being that has not translated into religion until you get to the gospel. And now we're talking about a soul. Well, there's a piece of us that ruach is in their conversation has changed. It's now it's a it's an identity. Is soul the same thing as Holy Spirit? No, not, not to the gospel writers. So its soul is an individual thing. Holy Spirit guides those. It's a section of Okay, that uh, that's leadership the, the, the soul would be yeah yeah and the spirit uh guides those souls so if the church movement decides to say we're going to eradicate all homelessness in the United States they would say that's guiding them by the Holy Spirit our souls motivate uh, well our souls, uh are us individually doing that so Jew no, is not motivated by something else because they don't have the spirit so they're motivated by Torah so Torah says you are to do these nice. things yeah 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 and, and it's and it's even deeper because when you don't do that you're making a reflection of God to somebody else that's not godly I mean like that's that's the to me it's harder it's a hard it's a harder core version of what we believe. If if I if I sin against someone else against Torah, uh I God's eyes can turn away from me. Like that's the idea. God could, could not pay attention to me. And my rule and it dies, it's just it's just worthless. And that's their fear. Christians, on the other hand, when well, we have a fear of not being reunited with God or our loved ones, our soul departing from this earth. Jews, it's during the day. So it's not about the afterlife for them, it's the present day. And I would say Christians have modified our beliefs in the last 200 years to say it's not just the afterlife, it's today as well because of our interaction with the Jewish world. So when I have a rabbi teach me about the Hebrew Bible, you know, you go, Oh, well, so I guess. But so you're not going to heaven? No, I don't care. But, <laughs> but it doesn't make No, that's what I'm about it. <laughs> I live every day to, the, to glorify God. That's it. You live every day to glorify God. You just follow a different path than I do. No one said that it had to be the exact same path. And you go, but? <laughs> he I know. I know it's complicated, but it's really not. There's multiple ways to God. Not everybody has the the only way, except for for you, you say Jesus is the only way, the truth and the life. For us, God has always been there and will always be there for us and never has abandoned us. We just have to learn it. Yes, yes. Yeah. So it, 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 <laughs> That's right. So it's interesting you say that because part of what's happening here is the politicians of the time who are also religious leaders. Are asking that question because then who has the power? If you resurrect, if if a human being now has the power to resurrect from the dead, oh, who's really in charge? So this is a, this is a big thing. That's why we're spending so much time on this. It's not a simple concept. We the base, it brings us back to the basis of our faith is the basis. Right. For us. That's right. And that's what it all circles back to. Always. And we know the truth. <laughs> we know the truth. And in their minds, so do they. So So uh it's funny that it says this that because when the I'm gonna just keep going in verse thirty four, because when the Pharisees now remember they function differently. Pharisees are more more of a religious uh leaders they end up eventually becoming what we know as rabbis today because that's their job is to teach the law you know that he had silenced the sadducees they gathered together and one of them a lawyer interestingly enough asked him a question to test him teacher which commandment in the law torah is the greatest he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, saying all the law of, uh, and the prophets. Uh, so that first part, he's quoting De- Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the second part, I think it's Leviticus. Um, chapter 19, 1918. 19, 18. Both of those, notice that they're from two different books. Um, that's on purpose. It also shows his broad spectrum of understanding of the Hebrew Bible. Or now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question, what do you think of the Messiah. Now, he wouldn't say the word Mashiach, but he challenges them. uh, Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Notice, Notice the language. This is what they're looking for. The Mashiach is going to put the enemies under the feet of the the uh, uh, underneath the feet of the shield if david thus calls him lord how can it be his son no one was able to give him an answer nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions uh, understand why i'm telling you yeah no it's 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 getting ready to be bad because then he get to chapter 24 Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others for they make their that board yeah huh. i did not realize it said that well they make their statements broad and their fringes uh long they they love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven, nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, and all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humbles themselves will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much of a child of hell, or is it Gehenna, as yourselves, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary is bound by nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by the oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that has made the gold sacred? And you say, whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar is bound by the oath. How blind you are. For which is greater? The gift of the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the sanctuary swears by it, and by the one who dwells in it. And who swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by the one who is seated it upon it. Just pause for just a second. So are you seeing a a, a theme? yeah yeah this this is uh uh this this is okay the the language here is kind of proof that this has happened after the destruction of the temple if you listen to the language of things that are happening they watched as all of these things took place in the house of god and they did nothing so there's a dr carter calls it he says uh This is why they're not legitimate leaders. It distinguishes Matthew's followers of Jesus from the synagogue. It does not claim that all Israel rejects God or God rejects Israel. No such rejection occurs in the gospel. However, in terms of language, the chapter's content is polemic. It uses stereotypical terms to attack an enemy. Lots of groups in the ancient world, both Gentile and Jewish, attack their enemies with precisely the same language used in this chapter. It is commonplace to say your enemies are snakes, or blind, or hypocrites, guilty of sexual and economic sins, deceivers, murderers. This is the usual way of talking about opponents. Similar, he says, contemporary political fights are of a similar kind. The other party's proposal is always too little, too much, or too late. Such claims say more about the one making the claim than about those being attacked. These factors help us to recognize we are not reading careful research, thoughtful historical reporting. We are reading a polemic, uh, bitter attack on particular opponents that employs typical language to show major differences. What he says is this is the most important part. We Gentiles must not apply this attack to all Jews in the gospels time or in our own time. We must not forget that Jesus is talking to his disciples warning them, slash us, not to do these things. So as he continues, this is, but it's really important to remember that he's saying who's in, in trouble. The scribes and Pharisees, this is, this is what's going on. Not the whole nation of it, uh, Israel, but the, the people that were in leadership at the time of the destruction of the temple. This is your fault. You let the house of God be destroyed. And woe to you because it's, we, we can't even worship it. Now what are we supposed to do? This is his language. The author is obviously super angry. So let's keep going, because it gets really cool at the end. strong sense of Be careful what you do. Well, that's what he's saying. You're, you're, uh, well, For example, he says, woe to you scribes and his Pharisees and hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and and, uh, cumin, that's what it really is, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. It is these you have ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out uh, a gnat, but swallow a camel. uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside also may be clean. I mean, he's he's talking about us, right? Woe to you, uh, scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of the bones of the dead and all kinds of filth so you also on the outside look righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Uh, Woe to you, blah, 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 for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. which did happen. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors, you snake, you brood of vipers. How can you escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets, sages, and scribes, some of you whom you will kill and crucify, ding, 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 and some you will flog in your synagogues, ding, 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 and pursue from town to town, so that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So that was happy. Is this was said to the of disciples, is yeah, right? And yes, crowds, and after crowds, right, according to Matthew. According to Matthew, right, there's a group of people that were hearing him say this now. Again, that's disciples. This is obviously written after the destruction of the temple. So, did Jesus say this in front of his disciples? I would this is where I switch heads, right? Like, so Dr. Carter is focusing in on the idea of the Roman Empire. Um, <laughs> Narrative, right? I would say that some of my other professors, like Dennis Smith and uh, Brandon Scott, would be focusing in on the historicity of this. Would this would Jesus have actually said these things? Um, again, eighty percent of the time, we know that if it's a parable, Jesus most likely actually said it, and they wrote it down and kept track of it. His the historical Jesus movement probably would say that Jesus probably did not say all of these things. Um, but the church is battling what has happened and uses Jesus to say that. That's just an anthropological thing. It's not a bad deal. That, that happens all the time. We call them, you know, priestly inserts or commentary from the writer. I would say this is commentary from the writer, uh, from a historical perspective. And once he got started, he went That's right. And then it's and then it's just the long. I mean, he's super mad. And then the, at the end, at thirty-seven, he's quoting like the laments uh, that are found in Ruth and like in the Deuteronomy Psalms. Um, so this is this is real, real stuff. So was the writer. if you saying that, it sounds like to me the writer was was mad oh yeah. ticked off and the more he started writing things down he remembered something else yeah and remembered, wrote more and wrote more and you could hear his voice starting out to be soft mm-hmm. and then as it goes it gets more and more flamboyant and louder and... Mm-hmm. yes <laughs> that's it and oh yeah by the way and 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 i and i love if if you look at it from that perspective hopefully there's not the guilt that comes with it, right? Because the language is still there. But if you look at it from the historical perspective versus the theological perspective, like if I was to preach, I, I can't preach this. Right? Like this is, somebody has preached this, usually in political commentary. Um, the, the dangers the church kind of faced towards the end of the 20th century was when you started seeing clergy specifically talk about politics from the pulpit you know well you should be in the name of god here's your proof uh no 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 that's literally if we look at this from the historical perspective this has nothing to do with us we did not destroy the temple of jerusalem you know we're not a part of the roman empire no matter how many people want to compare the united states to it there's no comparison at all we, we are not afraid of any of them coming into our homes and killing us tomorrow, uh, just for what we believe, faithfully. I mean, I I I have total confidence in the system that we live in. That says, I can I can believe completely different than the person sitting across from me, and that's going to be okay in the country that I live in. I am no I have no fear, no matter what happens politically. If I start using the Bible, however, to prove what I believe on a nationalistic level, then you have, then you have a problem. That's, that's where Matthew chapter 23 is dangerous to use, to preach, um, in, in, in defense of American politics. Cause it's, it's not, it's not designed that way. So like, it's funny you guys asked me, Michael asked you guys, how does Josh prepare for a sermon? Uh, Michael and I come at it from completely different perspectives. Um, I'm a little bit different in the sense that when I look at a scripture, you all know that I'm looking at it from a historical perspective, an anthropological perspective, a sociological perspective, before I even think theologically. What is it that God wants us to know from that? Well, I want to know who the audience is. So here, Matthew's commentary, he is super torqued off that people have done well, the scribes and Pharisees, because he names them, sat by as the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. So then what I would do is to say, okay, well, let's look at what really is going on here. And then I would look at commentaries for a little bit. And then I would say, so then what does that say for us? Well, honestly, as we're just having this discussion, I probably would go to the lament at verse 37 uh, to verse 39. Um, because I think that's the theological statement of this whole passage. Does that make sense? And then, as I'm doing that, I would I would say, okay, so what does that mean to me? And how am I going to process it with you? What What does that look like? I have I have a burden as the minister of the church in the sense that I have to preach the gospel in a way that challenges us but doesn't isolate any. That's hard. Michael uh, has does he has that luxury as well, but it's also something that's defining in that sense that I'm the one that you called, like I I'm the one that's here with you on a daily basis. Michael gets to come in and challenge you for a little bit, and then he goes away, and then hopefully the idea is that he challenges me in the same process. What the Gospel of Matthew writer is doing here is the exact same thing. He's challenging the status quo, and interestingly enough, in the first century, this would have been a political statement. It would have been against Rome. It would have been against the religious leaders of the time. So I, you see, you see how this is—it's dangerous, and you could use it both ways what your temple is and what your work. Yes. I mean, as a Christian. Yes. So. I think Dr. Carter would 100% agree with you on that. That's the theological commentary that you take from that. If you took stri- scribes and leaders out of that and just put yourself there, be careful what your temple is. Be careful what you value you do these things. See, either, again, you just wrote your own sermon. that works out perfect. <laughs> <laughs> like that's, that's, I think that's, <laughs> that's the important part about studying the scripture this way, is, is that, OK, so there you go. We take that out. Kim's saying, oh, I could look at this as a, a mirror. There's my servant. If I'm talking to somebody about Matthew 23, here it is. Um, and yeah, I've, I've heard people use this other ways, but ultimately that's i think that's the power of studying scripture this way open uh, my goal is is that you don't come out of here going well josh said <laughs> and this is way i have to believe uh then I, I have failed to allow you to think for yourself you're adults <clears throat> that's not my job is to tell you how to think for yourselves well you want to get into the destruction of the temple foretold i mean we're on a roll let's do it so as Jesus came out of the temple oh yeah I forgot that part did you realize that he was in the temple that whole time so as he came out of the temple and was going away his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple uh, In the, I think it's in the gospel of Luke uh, he, they start talking about how beautiful the buildings are and how nice they are and, and Matthew just says well they're talking about it and then he asked them you see all these? Do you not? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Um, and then you see how quick he does that? He leaves the temple temple, and as he's walking out, he says, It's all gonna be torn down. Don't even worry about it. And then all of a sudden, yeah, and then all of a sudden he's on the Mount of Olives. Uh the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will this be? So, just to give you a geographical idea, the Mount of Olives is like, if you think the temple is up on the hill, the, the Mount of Olives is just just off to the side of it. Do you, yeah. you have it? Yeah, this thing that Sarah found in storeroom sent to the city the, 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 the class. Those pictures of So, this works. Uh, So, if you guys can see it online, uh, I'm going to show them the same thing as I'm showing you uh, the Jewish quarter. This is today. So, yeah, there it is. Haram al Sharif is right there, would have been the temple. Uh, And then the Mount of Olives is. Somewhere in the Muslim quarter. No, they they just kind of referred to this whole thing as the Mount of Olives. So for you all, the Haram al Sharif, the 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 Temple Mount, is like right here. Um, and then the temple itself would have been here in this little this little garden here where the trees are, which is really weird because they will not build anything there. They just left the garden, and they believe that that's where the the temple actually was. Uh, and then there's Alhassan uh, Mosque, but then the Mount of Olives. I gotta get it right, David. Okay, so there's Mount Zion. So here's Mount Zion. Uh, yeah, and then Gethsemane. This is that that place I was telling about. There's the uh, the garden, and then there's the Church of Saint Stephen. Um and then the gates. But then but the Mount of Olives, right? That's where they are. Mount yeah. of Olives. It's, if I remember right, it's just like right out here. Like this whole area is the Mount of Olives. It's, it's if I remember right. So it's part of the Muslim quarter today, part of the Christian quarter today. And it's interesting because it makes sense geographically how it would have worked. So if he left the temple, which was right here. He probably would have left out the Western Wall, uh, and and they have been walking this area, but it is uh, overgrown now. So, um, yeah, like 10 blocks, five blocks. yeah, like uh, I'd say even less than a quarter of a mile. It was it was not. It, there's a. It's really not that big of a walk, but it makes sense that he leaves the temple, says it's going to be thrown down, and the Mount of Olives is sitting there. And, and as you guys keep looking, I'm just going to keep reading. But he says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. See, so notice that it's overgrown and there's all kinds of people there now. Basically, all of them built on top of it. Uh, Tell us when will this be and what will be the sign of your coming? And at the end of the age, Jesus answered them, Beware that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah. This was a common practice um, in the 80s that people said that they... Uh, uh that they were jesus or they were another messiah um and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars and see that you are not alarmed for they, this must take place i love this language if anybody wanted to do this this would be a comfort passage and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars see that you are not alarmed For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginnings of the birth pains. There's your comfort. Um, Then they will hand you over to be tortured, and you will be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations, and because of my name, the many will fall away. They will betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So I want to read a little bit of this commentary here. Jesus' names, increasing turmoil, religious, military, natural disasters, uh, further signs include hostility towards disciples, apostasy, which you know, means that they're speaking of uh, they're just not fake teaching, um, and division amongst the disciples. He continues to tell them to be, uh, stand, stand strong. Now, the desolating sacrilege was the altar to Zeus that Antioch Epiphanes established in the temple in, in the 160s B.C. The uh, Antiochus Epiphanes made them put a statue of Zeus inside the temple. Uh, Titus' troops sacrificed in the temple. their false gods before they destroyed it. Uh, Tyrants flaunt their power in God's face. they have a I just want to just oh yeah, especially in lightning often appears often accompanies divine appearances such as you see in Exodus. It especially depicted J- Jupiter's sovereignty that Roman emperors manifested in the rules and wars. At Jesus's coming, God's empire will be um, established over Rome. This is coming. We haven't read this part. Um, so when you see I'm in verse fifteen the desolating sacrilege, standing in the holy place, as was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Um, Mine says let the reader understand. Okay. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must not go down to take what is in the house. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for at that time there will be great suffering, such as has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce great signs and omens to lead astray if possible even the elect take note i have told you beforehand so if they say to you look he is in the wilderness do not go out if they say look he is in the inner rooms do not believe it for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far to the west so will we come so will the uh, so will be the coming of the son of man Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, and from one end to the, the heaven to the other. And that's where we're going to pause until next week. So, just a just a few words before I go any further. <clears throat> This is known as uh, apocalyptic literature. Um, this is—I mean, this sounds just like the Book of Daniel, uh, Ezekiel. I mean, this is uh, the imagery that's being used here. Specifically, the the lightning, the thunder, the all of those things are images that are being used by Rome in their propaganda stuff, like on their coins, you know, on their graffiti. By the way, if you have a chance and you want to Google it, um, there is a whole bunch of stuff being found um, in uh, Pompeii. Pompeii right now, the archaeological digs are just extremely vast. And uh, they're really doing a lot of cool stuff. They found all kinds of interesting graffiti of uh, Roman propaganda, of elections, and things. Um, it's really kind of fascinating. If you guys wanted to Google it, it's it's all over the place. Um, but to me, the interesting thing is, as we're reading this, the same stuff that was happening in Pompeii was also happening in Jerusalem. The uh, these. Political structures that were taking place um, were definitely taking a hold of those Jews and Christians of the time. The interesting thing for me is that persecution part where they're gonna arrest you and take you and put you in places, that really doesn't happen until about the 80s or the 90s. So there's a little bit of a um, verification that this was written at that time. Uh, the destruction of the temple happened at 70. Um, we tend to believe that Matthew was written in the later 80s, early 90s, um, depending on who you talk to, but most historians in the last 30 years believe closer to the end of the first century. And part of that is this part where they're going to be tortured and stuff, where they gathered up Christians by the dozens and threw them in uh, Colosseum pits. We do know that the destruction of the temple <clears throat> that the, the spoils of war built the Colosseum in Rome. I think that's that's what paid for all of it. So they carry it. And you see that in the Arch of Titus as, um, as you're coming into Jerusalem today. So, Or into Rome. Coming there, you see it. It's got menorahs and stuff on there. That's how you know on there On the Arch, you literally built the Colosseum on the uh, spoils of that. And that was built in 92. 92, 92 is one. it's like. Also, the slaves, so the ones built in the Jews. So right, I mean, right, right. That he not gathered the spoils, but I mean, the people, the spoils. Yeah. Yeah. This this idea of chattel is, is really uh, stuck in my brain. I read a book with Kevin. Um, during your vacation, about uh, the slave trade, especially in New Orleans. This idea is not a new concept, but this idea that how the Colosseum was built, how the first century was created, now um, Christians were involved as the chattel used. It was interesting to me. Uh, I'm going to stop there and I'm going to stop the recording.